and turn in your Bibles to John chapter 17. John 17, in your bulletin there is an insert that has uh, many of the verses we'll be looking at today, but not all of them. I'm going to read the entire chapter, but it also has an outline for you to follow along. Begin a new series after completing First and Second Samuel over the course of five years. Yes, five entire years of First and Second Samuel, and have realized that a series that would best complement, uh, not complicate, complement our steady diet of books like Isaiah would be a topical textual study on a theme. And what I mean by that is I'm going to take a given theme, and that is Christ-commissioned unity. The Scripture is full of how we as Christians ought to be united to one another. And many um, passages of Scripture touch on that theme. And so I'm going to center around a particular passage and go through that week after week in this series. Today it's John 17. It's kind of the foundation of this series. And John 17 is part of that upper room discourse that Jesus enters into with His closest disciples. And it's sometimes called His farewell discourse because it's before He, just before He goes to the cross. And this prayer that Jesus prays, and that's what John 17 is, one long prayer, is sometimes referred to as Jesus' high priestly prayer or, in fact, the true Lord's prayer because it's not what He taught us to pray, but it's what He was praying to His Father. And we're allowed to listen in on one of the most intimate, personal conversations between a son and his father. And it's amazing what we learn about the heart of our Savior through listening to what he prays for. You remember throughout the I Am series this summer, we, answered, we were trying to answer this question, who is Jesus? And we wanted to go right to the source. Who does Jesus say, I am? And in looking at those statements, we got to the root or the core of who He says He is. And so, when we want to get to the heart of Jesus, what is His heart for His people? Let's go to listen to Him and how He prays to His Father. So, follow along as I read God's holy and inspired and errant word, John chapter 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the one true, only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed." I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. 
While I was with them, I had kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they were not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be all one, all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, and they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for these words that have been recorded for our benefit, that we can get to know you, get to know your heart, your desire, your plan, your commission for us as your followers to be one, even as you and the Father are one. Lord, as we consider this text, I pray that the truth that is before us would sanctify us. That is your prayer. I pray that the truth that we hear would be driven deep into our hearts and that we would then live it out in our lives day by day by day. Lord, this is impossible for us who are self-centered, full of ourselves. We need you and your grace to rescue us from ourselves and to live this mission that you've called us to live, to be one as you have called us to be one. We pray for your assistance, your help, your guidance. In Jesus' name, amen. This week I was reading an article in a Pittsburgh paper that was linked from a Christian blog site that I go to, and I was intrigued by this one article because it referenced John 17, 11 in their article where Jesus prays that they may be one even as we are one. So I thought, this is perfect, I'm going to read it. Well then, what happens to me sometimes, and it may happen to you, I start down the rabbit hole. I'm not only looking at this article, but I'm looking at the article that it was responding to, and then I'm looking at the article that responded to their article, and then the comments that are underneath it, one after another. And so I got all like wrapped around this, but I'm going to lay it out simple for you so you can figure out how does this relate to John 17 and to us. So on September 8th, there was an article entitled, 
in the opinion section of this Pittsburgh paper, a Presbyterian's lament, our church is forsaking core values with reform that deforms. The response on September 17th was, in all things charity, a progressive Christian believes in these core values. And then the capstone being September 22nd, search for the will of God through your brain and science. And then I heard science, and I thought of Nacho Libre and Escaleto saying, you're judging me because I only believe in science, and then he gets baptized. All right, then I got focused, and I realized the first article was by a conservative, and the conservative says we're leaving the PCUSA because of same-sex marriage, abortion, and a Muslim praying at our General Assembly. The progressive then answers, and she says, I quote, Reflecting God's love for all, here is the foundation. Let's say our core value for harmony in our denomination and anywhere, really, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, in all things charity. What this means, she goes on to say, we agree that Jesus is our Lord and Savior. Declaring this is the only requirement for membership in our denomination. This is an essential upon which we need to agree. When Presbyterians like Miss Lott judge my confession of faith in Christ to be unworthy of fellowship, it grieves me. How we live out our lives in Christ and how we interpret Scripture, and we all do, are non-essentials. I don't know that we agree that those are non-essentials. But then the capstone article, the final one is by a scientist who responds, Quote, it's obvious that God attaches great importance to the brain He created and expects us to use it. He expects us to decide when religious laws are no longer appropriate. We do this righteously because it's obvious the intention of God that we temper the Word of God with the work of God. Religion says believe. Science says search for truth. In my judgment, that makes science closer to God than religion is. Lots of confusion out there today. There's a desire for Christians who call themselves Christians to be united, to be one. But what are we going to be one around? What is going to be the unifying factor? How should we understand unity, and then how do we practice it in living it out? The command for unity that Christ gives in John chapter 17, and the prayer that he prays for unity must be understood in the context of this magnificent prayer. I think that we'll see much of our understanding of what genuine Christian unity is supposed to be when we take God's Word seriously. So let's walk through John 17 and see how to define and practice Christ-commissioned unity. I don't know if you noticed, but if you just look at the 15 verses that I printed on your outline for you, Jesus refers to Himself 42 times in 15 verses. This passage is all about Christ. It is all centered on Christ. And it's Christ's conversation with His Father about His Father's glory and then asking the Father to glorify Him as He fulfills the plan that they agreed on from all eternity. It's about the Son, and He takes center stage. It's about Christ. Fifteen times He says, I, 
or 14 times he says I, 15 times he says me. This is all about Christ. And if our unity isn't first and foremost Christ-centered, it's not genuine unity. It's not Christian unity. We come from different backgrounds and we come to this place and maybe we share some things in common. Maybe we're more politically conservative. Maybe we're from a certain socioeconomic class. Maybe we work in the same type of job. But that's not what base is the basis for true Christian unity. Christ is the center of our unity. I love what the ESB Study Bible says about this section. It says, The unity of the Father and the Son, which existed from all eternity, should be reflected in the unity that fellow Christians have. Namely, the unity of a common mind and purpose, an unqualified mutual love and sustained comprehensive togetherness in mission. This unity is not organizational, but it's all-encompassing relational reality that binds believers together with each other and with their Lord, a unity that can be achieved only through the regenerating and sanctifying work of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. This unity is grounded in the Trinity. It's grounded in the unity that the Father and the love and the Son have for one another, in that love, in that oneness of mission and their purpose. And it's throughout Scripture that we read of this oneness that God desires for His people. In Ephesians, it's all about the church. It's all about the head who is Jesus Christ and how these parts of the body, you and me, fit together under this one head. In Ephesians 4, Paul says, I'm a prisoner of the Lord and I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Are, are we really characterized by people who are eager to maintain the unity of the, of the Spirit in the bond of peace? There's one body, there's one Spirit, just as I, recall, you, I told you, you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, who is over all and through all, this is the unity, the oneness that we share in Christ. He's the center. He's the head. Earlier in Ephesians 2, Jesus says, or Paul says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Paul's making reference to the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers and the fact that these people have been united together. Though they're different ethnic uh, backgrounds, different nations, they're now joined together because of Christ. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create himself one new man in place of the two and so making peace and reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility, unity, oneness. John P Piper says of this section, so I would sum up Christian unity from Ephesians 2 through 4 as having common convictions about Christ, common confidence in Christ, and common care for each other. I think that'll preach John. I'm sure he has preached it. Our Westminster Confession of Faith talks about the communion of the saints and what we share together as believers in Christ 
It's in Christ. Again, he said, our confession in chapter 26 says, all saints that are united to Jesus Christ their head by His Spirit and by faith have fellowship with Him in His grace, sufferings, death, resurrection, and glory. And being united to one another in love, they have communion in each other's gifts and graces and are obliged to the performance of such duties, public and private, as, so, as do conduce to their mutual good, both in the inward and the outer man. Because we are placed into the one body together, we ought to care for one another as we would care for our own body. Again, the confession goes on to say, saints by profession are bound to maintain a holy fellowship and communion in the worship of God and in performing such other spiritual services as tend to their mutual edification as also in relieving each other in outward things according to the several abilities and necessities which communion, as God offers opportunity, is to be extended to all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. They're calling in the name of the Lord Jesus. We commune with Him. We're together. Two years ago, this Sunday, Janie and I were just coming back from Moldova, and there we were visiting with believers in Jesus Christ who spoke an entirely different language, were from a different culture, had a different history and upbringing than I had. I never suffered under communism. I was never a part of a church that had to go underground because of fear of persecution. I worshiped together with believers who had a different language, different experience, but there was a oneness that we shared. Have you ever been around believers from a, a different culture or a different language and notice we have something in common? It's Christ. And that bond is, is thicker than any other. It's more significant than any other. Christ-centered in our unity. We must also be truth-grounded. Look at verse 7. Jesus prays, Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me and they have received them, and come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. The truth is important here. The words that Jesus spoke were the words that the Father gave Him, and they believed on the Lord Jesus. They believed in Him, and they believed the words that He taught. We're not just talking about everybody believing what they want to believe, and then just calling ourselves united. Jesus put the truth as the foundation for Christian unity. If you're not in the truth and building on the truth that is in Christ, you're not truly unified. In Ephesians 4.15, Paul says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ. Grow up. Grow up by ones who are in Christ speaking truth and love. Never should we separate those two. In uh, one occasion, Warren Wearsby wrote, Truth without love is brutality, and love without truth is hypocrisy. We can't be just so focused on the truth that we are going to say it in a harsh and brutal way. That's the truth. Just deal with it. I'm just being honest with you. Jesus never allows us to simply settle for the truth. He wants us to speak the truth in love. 
with grace. You know, Jesus was full of grace and truth. And so, uh, it was Tim Keller who said, love without truth is sentimentality. Love without the truth. It's just a feeling. It's just sentimentality. It supports and affirms us, but keeps us in denial about our flaws. Truth without love is harshness. It gives us information, but in such a way that we cannot really hear it. God's saving love in Christ, however, is marked by both radical truthfulness about who we are and yet also radical, unconditional commitment to us. The merciful commitment strengthens us to see the truth about ourselves and repent. The conviction and repentance moves us to cling and rest in God's mercy and grace. Can we hold the truth without compromise and still be loving? That's such a that's such a difficult thing. And I think maybe speaking to a bunch of conservative Presbyterians, it's easier for us to really emphasize the truth at the expense of being loving. Because it's the truth, and you've got to believe the truth, and the truth is important. And yes, I agree with all of that. I don't want us to compromise the truth. But if there's no love in that truth, it becomes ugly. I've often thought about um, the words of Tony and my youth pastor growing up. He would jokingly say, but with some um, insight of the truth, say, I want to be reformed and fit to live with. All right? I, I want to be as thoroughly biblical in my theology and precise in my doctrine and hold to it as carefully as I possibly can. But I also want to be fit to live with. I want to be the kind of person that doesn't push people away with the truth, doesn't make them run for the hills. Oh, he's that guy. Don't be that guy. Hold to the truth, but do so in a warm and winsome humble way. We as Reformed Christians who believe in the total depravity of man should be the most humble of Christians, shouldn't we? We should know ourselves as Scripture describes us. We're deceitful and wicked. That's what our hearts are. Who can understand it? We ought to be humble in our stand for the truth, but Christian unity must be founded on the truth. You know, when Janie and I first met in college, we came from some very different church backgrounds. I grew up in a Calvinistic, fundamentalist, Presbyterian denomination, and Janie came from an Arminian congregational church. And we had a lot of differences in our theology, a number of things that we were united on and, and shared in common. But in our goal for making sure that we were compatible, and I, and I think we ought to do this if we're progressing towards that deep unity of marriage, we, we ought to be able to talk about those things that are very important to us and very important truths. And so we had conversations, and we made it our mission to say we're only going to determine what is true by what the Word says. So we're not going to give all of our proof from logic and reason and history for my position, and you give all your proof from logic, reason, and history for your position, and then have it out. No, we're going to go to the Word. So we spent some time studying Ephesians 1 and 2, wrestling, well, what does God say in His Word? How does He 
describe salvation. We went to Romans 9. That was hard, working through Romans 9 and talking about that together. Now, this was over the course of time, over many conversations. The point is, if we're really going to be united, let's make it union that's based on the truth, not just simple compromise for the sake of compromise. The truth is important. I want you to consider the various spheres of your life, maybe as uh, concentric circles. The, the closest circle of your life will be your family, your, your, your wife and children, or your wife and, or your parents, the, that closest core of relationship. I think it's very important that we be most united in our understandings of the truth and our positions with the people that we are closest to. And then maybe the next circle of unity would be the fellow members in our church. We share so much in common in our confessions and catechisms that, that we, we care about and the doctrines that we love. And I see in my life maybe another circle of the other churches within our presbytery and then beyond that other Reformed Christians and then beyond that other believers in Christ and churches that love the gospel and preach the Word of God. And I have unity with each of those, but I, I'm really focused on making sure that I have the clearest unity with those who are I'm closest to. So think of your closest relationships as those that you're going to invest the most time and energy to practice that unity and that Christian unity because, as we'll see in a minute, the outside world is looking at that and wants to see where you are at in unity with other Christians. I grew up in a church that, as a denomination, they were more defined by who they were separated from and who they were not uniting with than who they were united to. And I hope that you would define the Christian unity in your life most clearly and most in a most focused way in your own personal relationships within your family and church. Let's work on those and guarding those and increasing our unity in those. I see you at the passing of the peace, so I know there's a, there's a, a fundamental um, healthiness to our fellowship together. Let's make it Christ-centered and truth-grounded. And guess what? The watching world is going to see what's going on with our fellowship, with our unity. Christ-commissioned unity is gospel-proclaiming. Look at verse 20. Jesus says, I don't ask for these only, but for those who will believe in me through their word. He's talking to disciples who would then be the apostles sent out with this message. He is saying that that message is going to go generation to generation, and there'll be those who haven't even been born yet that will be Christian as well. And they are one and united together. Verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you've given me, I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. We want the world to know Jesus. We want the world to see our Christian unity. And in seeing Christian unity, they're going to see Jesus. You see, 
Matthew Henry put it this way, Our Lord especially prayed that all believers might be as one body under one head, animated by one soul, by their union with Christ and the Father in Him through the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. The more they dispute about lesser things, the more they throw doubts upon Christianity. Do you see that? When we just have petty squabbles, internal debates, uh, Paul warned about Uh, being too preoccupied with genealogies and other disputes, those start to wear down the credibility of our Christian unity. And it reflects on Christ. But the reverse can be true. When we show unity and love for people that we are not naturally like, that we wouldn't normally hang out with and be together with, when God brings unity in those relationships, it's a testimony to the world outside. Wow, they can get along. Look at our country. Look at our world. Look at how many factions there are and divisions there are and separations there are in our culture. The church ought not to be that way. And when the church is practicing Christian unity the way that Jesus prays for it, the world can know that the world would know Christ. It's a gospel proclamation. Jesus said, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another As I have loved you, you also should love one another. By this will all people know that you're my disciples? If you can soundly refute all illogical arguments against the existence of God? Will people know that you're his disciples if you you have a keen understanding of the Christian history of our nation and the benefits that Christianity has brought to mankind across the generations? Will they know that you are Christians by your philosophical and moral condemnation of abortion, gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender rights? Will they know that you are Christians by your reverent and holy worship? Will they know that you are Christians by your life of piety and moral integrity? Oh, each of those, very important, and we ought to pursue. But don't expect that they will know you're Christian by that. Don't expect that those will be inroads for a gospel proclamation. Those are necessary things, but they're, they're not what's going to change the hearts of the watching world. Jesus has attached the change of the watching world and their hearts to see that we have become one so that the world will, make, will know that you sent me, so that the world would know they have to see our unity. We should strive and endeavor for this unity that God calls us to. By this will all people know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. So I want to conclude thinking again about that phrase that the progressive Christian made reference to in her article. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. Mark Ross tells us that this is often attributed to a different great theologians such as Augustine. It comes from an otherwise undistinguished German Lutheran theologian of the early 17th century, Rupertus Meldenius. Ladies, if you're looking for a good baby name, that's one right there, Rupertus. Anyways, the phrase occurs in a tract on Christian unity around 1627 during the Thirty Years' War, a bloody time in European history in which religious tensions played a significant role. The saying has found great favor among subsequent writers such as Richard Baxter 
and has since been adopted as a motto by the Moravian Church of North America and the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. Now, is this going to be a phrase that can be helpful for us? Will it help us at Redeemer to live out John 17, Christian unity? Well, I I think it can, and I think it should, but we have to agree on what those essentials that we are united about are truly going to be. They have to be centered on Christ. They have to be founded on the truth of God's Word. If they're not, it's not essential, and it's not what we can truly unite around. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. I think the big debate, the big struggle is going to be, will we be united on those essentials that Christ calls essentials? And when He does, when we are united as Christians to a watching world, we proclaim the gospel. And my prayer is that the unity that we practice in our homes, in our marriages, in our children's lives, in our church, would be a proclamation to the watching world so that they will know Jesus Christ and they will know what it means to be reconciled to God because we're showing what it looks like to be reconciled to one another. We do it every week, right, in the passing of the peace. We're reconciled to God. He's made peace through Jesus Christ. His sacrifice has paid the price that we ought to have paid and so we can be reconciled to God. How about we reconcile with one another? How about that relationship that isn't the way it's supposed to be with another brother or sister in Christ? You make it a point of prayer that you're going to practice Christian unity with that brother or sister. Let's pray. Father, we're again talking about something that in our own strength, it's way beyond us, impossible for us. We're being challenged again by your son Jesus and his prayer to practice something that has been so difficult for Christians throughout the millennia. And Lord, we know it's your heartbeat. We know it's your heart, your desire, your commission for us. Lord, you never call us to do anything without equipping us, and your Spirit who lives in us, works in us to live out this gospel of reconciliation with one another. I pray that, Lord, we would be one, even as you and the Father are one. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our hymn of response is hymn 359. We'll sing